It's back to the future with the return of a national party policy of years gone by. So what is social investment and does it work? For that and everything else worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of True Story contains some swears. It's really just the one word, to be honest, and it's quite muffled for reasons that'll become clear. So even if you don't like bad language, it'll probably still be okay. Anyway, that's the warning. Here comes the episode. Get out of my car right now. Get out of my car right now. When you're a rideshare driver, things can sometimes get a bit hairy. This recording was made by an Uber driver in July this year. Her name's Alice. This is a serious offence. You have to get out of my car. She'd rather we didn't use her last name. You have to get out of my car now. Get out of my car. Alice says that what went wrong that night was sort of because of COVID. When the pandemic hit in 2020, Uber set new guidelines. They told us they were doing some things to make us safe. Which meant everyone was meant to wear masks, of course. But also, you were no longer meant to have passengers in the front seat. But that meant all riders had to go in the back. Maximum three people. I started enforcing it when we actually started having cases. Alice says the problem is Uber didn't communicate the new rules very well to customers, so she kept getting into sticky situations. One night... Saturday night... Alice accepted a job... Got a ping from one of the one of the student hostels... Connecting her to a group of young women in downtown Wellington. So I zipped along there as fast as I could. Saw these girls. I said, you're going to need to wear masks and maximum three people. But then they all started piling in. I told them nobody in the front seat and they tried to get four in the back seat. So I asked them to get out of the car, you know, politely. And I explained to them that there was an Uber rule. Things went south pretty fast, so by the time Alice decided she should perhaps be recording what was going on, the tone wasn't exactly polite anymore. More like... Get out of my car right now! Get out of my car right now! So the girl tried to force my door open. She forced the front passenger door open. This is a serious offence. Lent in without wearing a mask, started yelling at me, then started becoming quite aggressive, and one of them said... Cancel the ride or rip your fucking door off! Cancel the ride or I'll rip your effing door off. (laughs) At which point I was... It was a threat. The issue at stake here was that if Alice cancelled the ride at this point, she could be penalised by the Uber algorithm. And if the passenger cancelled the ride she'd have to pay a cancellation fee of 7 or $8 or so. She was actually physically moving the car by lifting the door up and down. These were stroppy, stroppy young, young women. Uh, then I um, became a little bit worried, so I called the police. I've got a bunch of students in my Uber. They're refusing to get out. And the dispatcher was, was, was really good. Am I on speakerphone? Just one second, you should be. Um, why are you not on speakerphone? Hello? Yes, yes, you're on speaker. Um, I guess they're trained these days to settle situations. Okay, guys, guys, guys. Then he told them to get out of the car. I'm not saying you're doing anything wrong, but you need to leave. Then they started attacking the car. Oh my God! Thank God they've gone. You locked the doors. It was it was just really silly, but also quite terrifying. I mean, it doesn't sound like much, right? These four quite gorgeous young women with their brushed-out blonde hair 
you know, come and attack you. And I, I tell the story to my passengers almost as if it's a joke. You know, I got attacked by a, a gang of gorgeous women. But, but actually, it was extremely distressing. It really was. So all of that was over a $10 fee they didn't want to pay. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. What a night. But you know what? For some rideshare drivers, it's not the humans they meet that cause them the most grief. It's... Well, it's the robots. I'm Eugene Bingham. And I'm Adam Dudding. Kia ora. And this is our new podcast for stuff. It's called True Story. Right, because we'll be telling stories. Yeah, and they'll also be true. Each episode will focus on just one yarn. Sometimes it'll be investigative, sometimes it'll be quirky, sometimes it'll be deep and meaningful. But always it'll be about people and their voices. Here goes. True story number one. My boss is a robot. Four minutes away. All right. It's like. The thing about this story is that, though we said it's about robots... Six minutes away. It's also about what it's like to be a rideshare driver. Spoiler alert. It's a bit sucky at times. Which created a bit of a dilemma while we're actually collecting the interviews. Finding a trip... We needed to get from place to place quickly and cheaply. And it turns out a really good way to do that is uh, catching a rideshare, specifically an Uber. I'm feeling a bit conflicted about whether we should even be catching it, but Julian said... That's enough hand-wringing from you, Adam. Let's hear what the drivers had to say. Right. Thank you so much. You've already met Alice. Alice, I've been driving for Uber Ola and Zumi since December 2019. But we also talked to two other rideshare drivers, Nuruddin Abdurrahman. Nuruddin Abdurrahman, I've been driving for three, uh, more than three years for Uber. And Julian Ang. Julian Ang, I was formerly an Uber driver from July 2016 to about September 2018. And they explained how it works when you're a rideshare driver. I start my day by turning my phones on. Open your app. Uber app, the older app and the Zoomy app. I just log on to the app. I clean the car. You're just waiting for a ride request to come through. It gives you a sign. That means job's coming. The Zoomy jobs I automatically accept. You can decide to take or not. If it's an Uber job, I look at it with suspicion. I just accept the job. And you drive there on the fastest route to pick up the rider. You got about five minutes to wait for the passenger to come out. If someone hasn't turned up after five minutes, I can cancel the job and get paid. The rider comes into the car. You ask them, oh, are you Mr X or Ms X? I confirm their destination. I start the ride. Ascertain if they feel like chatting. And then the journey starts. Ask them if they're okay with listening to national radio. Then it shows me where the drop-off point is. If it's an Uber ride, I have to follow what the interface tells me to do. 
and the rider dismounts from the vehicle. Drop the passenger. Drop them off. End the ride. Slide the slider. Give them a rating. Check the amount that's come through. And they give me a rating. Uber, you can get paid twice a day if you want. I might need to drive around for a little bit. And then I might get another ping. So, straightforward enough, really. The magic of GPS and smartphones and big data management systems mean computers have got really good at connecting a rider to a willing driver, a customer to a service provider, a holidaymaker to an empty holiday home, a key to a lock, a yin to a yang. Yeah, 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 yeah. we get the picture, Adam. Right, sorry. Anyway, so it's all pretty clever, right? And a lot of the time, it works. The Uber, the Ola, the Zoomy, the Uber Eats, it turns up. Do you remember, by the way, your first Uber ride? Uh, actually, I'm not entirely sure, but I think, just to be a bit fancy, I think it might have been in San Francisco in 2016. Uber had been in Auckland for a couple of years by then, and it was, it was just launching in Christchurch. But I'm pretty sure I hadn't tried it at home, and using it in San Francisco... It kind of, it felt a bit kind of cool and modern and, and magic. Also, San Francisco is the actual, the, the home of Uber. That's that's where it first launched, 2011. Hmm. Mine was actually in the US as well. It was in Portland, Oregon, and we were about to catch a bus and it started snowing. And I thought, wait, hang on, there's this new thing, isn't there, where you can get someone to come pick you up. So we did. I remember it being quite scary waiting for it to arrive, maybe because I thought there might be a robot turning up. Well, it just shows how prescient you were even then. But can I get back to the script? Mm, Sure. Okay. Yeah. So these app-based service matching systems have been going for just over a decade. But as cool as they are, we're now starting to see that when you replace humans with algorithms or artificial intelligences or let's call them robots, things can start to get a bit weird. Like there's this thing that happened to Alice. You remember Alice? I actually haven't had breakfast. I had a cup of coffee and a cup of tea and another cup of coffee. (laughs) But before we get into that, I do want to set things up a bit. So I think anyone who's used Uber or Ola or Zoomy has an inkling of that matching of needs thing. I want a ride. The driver wants a job. Uber brings us together, handles the logistics and and takes a cut from the fare. Robots are good at this stuff. Yeah. But what I didn't realize till we started talking to Alice and Nuruddin and Julian is that when you drive for Uber, your robot boss is not just the entity that doles out rides and gives you the directions, it's also the thing that pays you and that tracks your reliability and your willingness to accept jobs. And it's also the thing you talk to when things go wrong, like if a passenger makes a bogus complaint against you, say. What? Um, Look, I'm a bit confused. So there are no humans at Uber head office, is that what you're saying, to answer the phones and emails, just robots? No, there are flesh and blood humans there, and there are humans in the call centres too, but it's kind of complicated. Look, let's just let Alice explain what happened to her. I'd worked a hard week um, earning money for Uber, and there were several customers with bunches of four people and I'd politely told them they couldn't travel with me. These situations where four people wanted to fit into three seats hadn't escalated like the one we heard earlier. But Alice still reckons one of those groups must have been grumpy with her because 
she noticed she'd got a couple of poor ratings from writers. And I can't imagine what else it could have been, because, you know, I'm, I'm a polite person, I drive safely. But worse still, someone had made a specific complaint about her to Uber, and next thing Alice knew... It got seen a notification saying that I'd been robo-fired. Robo-fired? They didn't call it that. <laughs> they said that I'd been deactivated due to a complaint that there was a mechanical issue with my vehicle and that I was driving unsafely. Deactivated means you're off the app until Uber lets you back on. But really, Alice's word robo-fired kind of captures it. The computerised system that doles out your work suddenly cuts you off, and that's your income. So I was really puzzled and also horrified because I know that once the robotic interface has something in mind, it's almost impossible to detach it from that. What happened next was this incredible back and forth of messages between Alice and the Uber support desk. Because this story is brought to you by the Miracle of Podcasting, we asked Alice to read out some of what she wrote. All of these conversations are logged. And we got an actor called Ethan to read out bits from Uber's replies. My name is Ethan. Okay, Ethan is actually a robot voice we found on the internet, but his name really is Ethan. Anyway, Uber said... Hi. We recently received a report from one of your riders that your vehicle had mechanical issue and you were driving dangerously on recent trip. Really removed your vehicle's access to the app as a standard safety measure in order to have your vehicle reinstated. Basically, they say that if she doesn't get the problem fixed and send a receipt to prove it... One, a valid receipt associated with your last vehicle service and or... Two, a valid mechanics receipt for the repairs undertaken... She won't get back on the app. Thank you for your understanding. Well, Alice didn't understand, actually. She didn't accept she'd driven dangerously, and she didn't have a clue what the supposed mechanical issue was. So she replied, There is no mechanical issue in my car, and I have not been driving dangerously. I cannot pay for a service when there is no mechanical issue to fix. There is no receipt to provide, as there is no issue. Please immediately restore my access to the app. The Uber support desk was polite. We understand that there are always two sides to every story, and we appreciate hearing your side of it as well. And they filled Alice in about the specific mechanical issue. We recently received a report from one of your riders that your vehicle's air suspension light was blinking. This air suspension issue needed fixing. In order to have your vehicle reinstated, please have your vehicle repaired, or provide one of the following pieces of evidence. Which was all totally fine. Except, as Alice pointed out, there was one big problem with getting the air suspension repaired. There is no air suspension light in my vehicle, and this light cannot be blinking as it does not exist. I cannot supply a receipt for repair of a feature that does not exist in my car. The Uber support desk received her message, cogitated upon her impeccable logic, and replied, We understand how your concern with reactivation of your vehicle could be frustrating. As we have already mentioned, we require a valid mechanic receipt in order to re The sign-off is nice, though. We look forward to hearing from you. From here, the conversation, which eventually stretches to dozens of pages of transcript, starts to get a bit surreal. Alice. As the mechanical issue that does not exist is 100% repaired, I have completed your requirements. Uber. To reinstate your vehicle, you'll need to submit the documents mentioned on the previous contact. Your vehicle will be reacted. About this point, Alice basically blows a gasket. 
There are quite a lot of capital letters in her replies and words like... Unreasonable. Disturbing. Very serious. Oppressive. Distressing. Uber, meanwhile, sticks to its guns. As we have already mentioned, we require a valid mechanic receipt in order to reactivate your vehicle. It remains very polite. Thank you again for your patience and understanding. So, and I mean, this is typical for the robots. You'll have something common sense to say to them, but all they do is just send you back a robot reply and you have to send a receipt for the repair. I mean, I have to admit, I was having a little bit of fun with Uber, but also, why should I have to go down to my mechanic and bother him? (laughs) He's a busy guy and I'm like, hey, Glenn, can you please repair this thing that doesn't exist and give me a receipt for it? You know? Alice didn't get a receipt for a non-existent repair. Instead, she kept sending messages and making phone calls to Uber until finally the situation was elevated to some managers, managers, manager, and she was let back on to the Uber app. I think it was 2.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, and I spoke to the supervisor for perhaps an hour. Wait a minute. So she is talking to humans? Where's the robot? Well, that's Alice's big insight. Long before she drove Ubers, Alice had a pretty senior job in IT. She's got a maths degree too. And she's been thinking about AI and algorithms and the rest of it all her life, really. And she's come to realise alongside the literal robots, the algorithms that actually match drivers and riders and calculate the fares, there are also humans within the rideshare companies who are being required to act like they are robots. And she's totally fascinated by that merging of humans and machines. It's almost a cyborg entity. That's why she kept up her end of that surreal argument with Uber about a non-existent air pressure light. I'm only going there because I'm interested in what the robots will do. She's basically an amateur researcher whose specialism is the personality of Uber's algorithms. Have you heard of the Turing test? Of course everyone knows that, right? You know, artificial intelligence passes the Turing test when you can't tell it's a robot. You talk about the Turing test when, say, there's a chatbot that is so human-sounding in its responses that you can't be sure it's not a human at the other end. And Alice reckons the Uber support desk is basically like the Turing test in reverse. These are actually people who behave like robots when you phone them up, and they're actually people with a supposedly with a name, but they are people pretending to be robots, so they are people trying to fail the Turing test. These humans are locked into selecting from predetermined scripts, and the scripts aren't designed to deal with a driver who wants to argue about a non-existent receipt for a non-existent repair to a non-existent broken light. Yeah, these people in the Philippines who, you know, I mean, they're real people, they're very polite, they're very well educated, their English is brilliant, but they have no power at all to do anything other than what their robotic interface allows. And I have been interested in how much I can say to them, hey, this reply is an identical duplicate reply and it totally ignores everything I've said. It seems that you are a robot. Are you a robot? If you are a robot, you will just send me another duplicate reply. So back comes the duplicate reply. Is this something we might call it the Alice test of, you know, can Uber make their human beings seem indistinguishable from robots, no matter how hard Alice tries. Knowing that there's a human being in there somewhere, 
but I can't get the human being out. Most of the time. We asked Uber about the difficulty drivers have communicating with the company and all those cut-and-paste answers. Uber said, yeah, users may receive automated messages at the outset before things are escalated, but its support team responds to thousands of app user interactions each day. Look, if I was driving Uber, I think I'd be fine with the computer finding the nearest passenger for me for the next ride, but that's so strange that there's something kind of robotic about the humans themselves. Well... You say you'd be fine with Uber finding your next ride, but it turns out there's some serious concerns about that part of the system as well. That's coming up. Very interesting. Sad that so many can be influenced by one little bastard. The Commune. Free love, group therapy, and a guru called Bert. What could possibly go wrong? Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for The Commune. A top-notch piece of journalism. Compelling listening. White silence. An airliner takes off from Auckland Airport on a sightseeing trip to Antarctica. A few hours later, all 257 people on board are dead. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for White Silence. We're back. And Adam, you were hinting about dark things afoot in the ride-sharing apps. Well, maybe not dark exactly, but take a listen to what Julian Ang has to say about his introduction to the world of ride-share driving. It was 2016 and Julian was feeling burnt out in his office job and he wanted to try something new, maybe start some businesses. Then he saw an Uber ad. Trade me ad, looking for drivers pretty much guaranteeing pay at $35 an hour and promising lots of flexibility, being your own boss and able to choose the hours that you want. Julian jumped at it. Back then, new Uber drivers were getting a lot of direct support at real-world meet-up venues called Greenlight Hubs. Greenlight Hubs, where you can actually walk in, uh, sign up for it. There'll be people over there to meet and greet to tell you about how amazing this app is and how this is going to be life-changing and all that good stuff. To become an Uber driver at this time was like joining a gold rush. They would incentivize drivers by saying, oh, if you recommend somebody else to come and do this platform, we'll give you another $200. And for the first few months, I was probably averaging $35 an hour as per the ad, um, less expenses. Yeah. Happy days, but... Then the shine started to fade. Julian learned that he actually needed a passenger licence to drive legally, which he says he hadn't been told about, so he got one. And then, an even more serious problem. Uber was so good at signing up drivers that the roads were now awash with Priuses looking for rides. <laughs> and they all parked everywhere, double parked everywhere, and they're parking like where the taxi stands are. And it, it really showed in my income because it started rapidly declining. I reached out to Uber going, hey, what's happening? You know, the income's no longer what it used to be. And all I get is, oh, well, we are working on it. Then those lovely, friendly green light hubs shut down. So whatever sort of human-to-human contact that we used to have was all then limited to, you need to log this through the app. Plus, that be-your-own-boss thing was turning out to be a mirage. 
sometimes you could log on and there could be a change in your terms and conditions and you just have to accept it if you want to keep driving in a platform. Otherwise, it's like, well, bugger off, you know, too bad. Find you another job, you know. We as so-called driver partners had no say in anything. This didn't feel anything like a partnership. Rather, Uber felt like a regular employer and a controlling, nosy employer at that. It's an intense form of micromanagement. When you are driving, everything's monitored, everything's recorded. Meanwhile, there didn't seem to be any of the good bits about having an employer. No minimum pay, no annual leave, no sick pay. And if anything went wrong and if you got suspended or you got dismissed, there's no right to redress. Oh, and then there were all the expenses. Fuel, brake pads, tyres, insurance. Probably a third of the income would be dedicated just to running the car. The $35 an hour days were getting rarer. Sometimes the effective hourly rate was falling well below minimum wage. But there was one other thing about Uber that made it surprisingly difficult to take the final step and quit. The app itself. Even on the days he wasn't working, Julian would find himself glancing at the driver app and getting sucked in by the app's heat map. You look at the heat map and it says you are missing up. What's a heat map? It's a map of the real world, like Google Maps, I guess, on the Uber app. Except there are patches on the map that are different colours. There are different shades of orange, and it sort of goes deeper and darker until it hits like a crimson-type red. And the colour basically shows you the surge pricing. Surge pricing? That's where Uber jacks up the rate at busy times to incentivise drivers to make themselves available. Like a light orange could be at 1.2 times the normal price. Uh, deeper orange could be 1.5. When it starts going into red, it could be 2, 2.5, three times the normal price. Sometimes if you happen to just be looking at the app and you see hues of amber and the deep red, you're like, oh, I should really be hitting the road. There's always this constant anxiety of fear of missing out. It's almost like a game, right? Hunt the map for the greatest treasure, race against other players for the highest paying rides. Exactly. Lots of researchers are talking about the gamification of these apps. And that's something Julian really noticed. Like the way that if you said yes to lots of rides and got good ratings, you'd move your way up different status levels. Gold, diamond, platinum. Gaining new powers as you went. Every time when you move up, it unlocks benefits. A bit like Candy Crush if you like. These are benefits that really count. Discounts on fuel, or being shown more detailed information about a ride before you've accepted it, or getting bumped up the queue for airport pickups. There were some other things too about the app that Julian found a bit odd. Like, you'd expect that the Uber system would offer rides to the driver whose car was closest to the rider. But in reality, that wasn't the case. And I tried it with friends going like, hey, do you mind just standing outside of my car and then requesting and then I'm in the car and I look around to make sure there's no identifiable Uber drivers parked next to me and sometimes it goes to the car like 100 metres away or 50 metres away. So I'm not sure whether it's a glitch in the system. It all added to a sense that the app was unknowable, a bit unpredictable, a black box that made arbitrary decisions and played favourites. Nuruddin, that's the other driver we talked to, he saw something similar. He'd compare notes with other Uber drivers. 
Sometimes, let's say, in the mosque, we just pray and then all of us, we open the app together. A bunch of Uber drivers all logging onto the system at the same moment. But Nuruddin says there'd be some drivers whose apps would be going nuts. The job just like this coming and the rest of us are just sitting there. Nuruddin reckons the app was rewarding drivers for obedience. The app is really, really smart. It just knows everything. Which we kind of know, right? The app tracks everything. So of course Uber knows which drivers say yes to the most rides, which drivers cancel the least, which drivers behave. You know, you are a chosen child, so you got some kind of things, and you are the naughty one, you got a punishment for it. In fact, that's precisely how those Candy Crush levels Julian talked about work. The way to reach gold or platinum or diamond is simply to do lots of rides, cancel hardly any of them, and get lots of five-star ratings. In other words, do what the app tells you. The system, the way it was built is that it just turns you into a robot itself. So say the app offers you a job. You press it. Reveals the destination. And this time you're unlucky. It's a short trip that's hardly worth your while, but... You just go... Because cancelling would affect your obedience rating with Uber. Now you are angry inside and the traffic is stopping you. So by the time you arrive at the pickup, you're seething, but... You just have to smile now to just make the passenger you are welcoming. Otherwise, the passenger is going to say, oh... The driver was not really a nice man. He was not chatting with me, which is going to bring your rating down. So you just have to pretend and laughing at them. But you're dropping them. You say, I didn't want to drop you. And then after the drop off, ping, another job offer. And now the circulation continues. You know, you just you got bills to pay. Nuruddin says he's also noticed how ride-sharing apps affect the humanity of passengers too. Like this one time. What happened was a very lovely couple with their child, they jumped in my car and they were feeding their baby in the car. And as a father, you know, children is something that you always loved. I was chatting with them and they dropped food in the car while they were feeding and there's just a bit of mess. So... When they were about to clean, I just said, oh, don't worry, I will just do it. Usually I might say, okay, you need to clean it. But this time, because of the child, I'm just really being nice to them. You don't even have to take that rubbish. So they went out of the car and I cleaned it. I just went. And after a while, just a message comes through. My car is not clean and I was complained about. And I'm not sure exactly who did it, but it's most likely them. And I said, why... Those couples it was chatting very nicely now turn out being blaming me for something they did. And the only reason is because they don't know my intention, why I said don't do it. Maybe they think I'm going to make money out of them because if I complain, the company going to charge them to pay for making the mess. So they are just preempting. It was the driver and the car's problem. That was the mess. Nuruddin's point is that a crummy system can make even good people do crummy things. So it makes people even against each other. They were just very nice. But the only reason they are doing that is they don't want to be blamed and pay some money, so they just have to do something about it. In the past few years, Uber's reputation has taken a hammering. A former employee leaked a vast trove of emails and memos which showed how all over the world, 
The company had lobbied politicians, trampled over labour laws, misled investigators, even exploited violence against its own drivers, and avoided tax, all while it was growing explosively. Some of that stuff is just business doing business stuff, isn't it, Adam? You know, they're providing a service that people really like to use. I mean, hands up if you've taken an Uber ride in the last month or used Uber Eats. Or used it in the last five minutes to get to the studio. See? Uber told us, via a spokesperson in Sydney, quote, gig workers play an important role in our communities and economy. We want to improve the quality of on-demand work while preserving the flexibility and autonomy gig workers tell us they value. We are committed to industry-wide reform, end quote. In that same email, Uber also responded to questions we had about how well the company had communicated its COVID policies to passengers. Uber said it regularly communicated its COVID policies to passengers and drivers via in-app messages and email. The company also said it worked with experts to help make people, again, both passengers and drivers, safe. If a driver ever felt unsafe, they were encouraged to contact emergency services. Yeah, that's all fine. But those leaked Uber files really gave an insight into the corporate ethos. And it just seems like that hard-nosed, move-fast culture also shows up in the way Uber relates to the people that actually do the work, the drivers. Julian and Nuruddin and Alice have all worked for the robot boss in the Uber app. So we asked them all, if your robot boss were a person, how would you describe their personality? Their answers weren't complimentary. Julian? Unthinking, unfeeling, inaccessible, cold and calculative. Not a good boss, not by a country mile. Nuruddin? If there is evil, I think that is my boss. If there is um, the evil that made Adam to be kicked out of heaven, that was my boss. I really, really hate it. Alice? Authoritarian, um, autocratic, yeah, autocratic, exploitative and abusive. But... But with a, a very, a smooth face. I mean, Uber, their app is so smooth. I know I'm being exploited, but sometimes I just do Uber rides just because the app is so cute and the map of the city with its hotspots and all the little buttons I can press to look at my rating. It's, it's just seductive. Nuruddin is still on the Uber driver's app, but he's not logged on for a while. He's been busy with other things, including getting elected onto the Wellington City Council in October. And even though he considers the app to be an evil on par with the serpent in the Garden of Eden, he can see why thousands of New Zealand drivers are still working for Uber. It's about survival. You just have to do what you need to do. You have a family to feed. You have a bill to pay. Julian quit driving back in 2019, but not before publishing a 45-page report into worker exploitation in the gig economy based partly on his own experiences as an Uber driver. Earlier this year, both he and Nuruddin were parties to an employment court case in Wellington. Just like in many other countries, Uber drivers in New Zealand are asking to be recognised as employees, not as so-called independent contractors. Just as we finished editing this episode, the ruling in that employment court case was released. 
Chief Employment Court Judge Christina Inglis ruled that Julian, Nareedan and two other Uber drivers effectively were employees of Uber. As employees that have been entitled to things like the minimum wage, holiday pay and sick leave and the right to challenge dismissal and unionise and collectively bargain. The finding related directly to just those four drivers, but it seems pretty obvious that it has implications for the thousands of other New Zealanders who are driving for Uber. Uber said the judge's ruling was disappointing and said it would appeal. And Alice? Well, Alice does drive for Ola, that's an Indian-owned rideshare company, and the local rideshare firm Zumi. She actually has some issues with both of them as well, but neither of them get under her skin quite as much as Uber does. Yet, she's also still working for Uber. So I had to ask her, why do you drive for Uber then? Well, because I'm a stubborn wee lass. You know, I'm like, well, I decided to do it and I like to chat to people and I love to drive and Wellington's a great city to drive around. And I'm not going to let exploitative, enormous foreign corporations who are trying to suck the life out of New Zealand workers prevent me from doing it. We as drivers should be treated with respect and decency. But there's another reason too, and it's something to do with that crazy through-the-looking-glass conversation that Alice had with the help desk over her non-existent warning light. Driving for Uber is a job, the money matters, but it's also her ticket to a strangely specific field of scientific research. I am anatomising the creature that is Uber. And she intends to take it further. Remember, Alice used to be in IT, so she knows how to write code. And she's got a cunning plan. I I really want to write um, an interface to their robot. She figures that instead of replying manually to the support centre each time she argues with them, she could write a bit of software that will do all those replies for her. What better way to learn about the mind of her robot adversary? So that we'll go back to them with a a robo-reply just to see how long they will keep it up. Plus... It'll be fun. Just get under Uber's skin a bit. (laughs) Just see what they do. Like a lot of Uber drivers, Alice has worked out a few tips and tricks that help her cope with the weirdness and the indignities of having a robot for a boss. I personally do have some hacks, but I'm not going to give them away my trade secrets. Um, But the best hack of all is just to text the person. She's talking about when the algorithm has found you a rider and you've accepted the job and you're on your way, but you're actually not totally convinced your robot boss has actually found you the best ride in the world. So if they haven't given a real name, it's like, what's your name? And are you actually committed to this ride or are you going to cancel it? You know what I mean? Like, or are you too drunk that you can't answer my security questions? So I just communicate with the person. So those are my hacks. It it sounds like your hack is you make an attempt to humanise the dehumanised interaction. Oh, that's that's a wonderful way of putting it, Adam. I do, yes. Because we will be into driverless cars, but right at the moment, I am a human driver. I'm not a robot car yet. So, what other true stories have you got coming up? So they're quite quite cunning and quite shy. Oh yeah, yeah. There's someone trying to shoot you, you get cunning, aren't you? <laughs> so, yeah. Sneaky Aussies, eh? 
Yeah, they are. Yeah. That's next time. True Story is written and hosted by Adam Dudding and me, Eugene Bingham. Our producer is Jen Black. Our executive producer is Chris Reed. Mixing by Connor Scott. Graphics by Catherine George. Thanks also to Ethan the Robot, Daniel Fraser, Laura Heathcote, Nadia Tolich, Jenna Halloran, Janine Fennick, Joanna Norris, and Mark Stevens. The story of the most divisive murder case in New Zealand's history. Black Hands. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for Black Hands. A man disappears and a woman goes to prison for 15 years for his murder, despite swearing she'd never even met him. Gone Fishing. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for Gone Fishing.